that's absolutely perfect. Well, you're a television man, so you are used to projection and clarity. And a, a radio man shouting into a fluffy microphone. But... <laughs> yeah. Although, I don't know, uh, Peter Chapman, if you were listening to Five Lives coverage over the Euros. Um, no, I wasn't. I was watching on television. You know how they used to have Mike Ingham and Alan Green? Now yeah, they've got Ian Dennis or Connor. McNamara or John Murray and then two pundits sometimes three I don't know why that is it's like they put entertainment over accuracy these days on Five Live yeah that is a good point actually did you see that crash that the um the British rowing team nearly had the other day Uh, I've read Um, about it yeah and listening to the commentary there I'm not sure who the commentator was it might have been Cracknell but he was getting so slurred and excited that he was losing, you know, the values of the commentator were lost, and i.e., you know, the standards that you would normally expect. And for the sake of having a name on there, and therefore more box office type, type entertainment, something was lost. I suppose we could go on about the grand days of radio and television, but let's stick with modern times and say, well, that's just the way it's gone. So, you know. Well, it's because they have to, they focus group it and they audiences. But I grew up listening to Mike, and um, I've spoken already to John Driscoll, and Nick Barnes, yeah. who have both been a dream to edit. So I always like talking to audio and radio guys because they know exactly when to pause. They know that um, it doesn't really work on the radio. They kind of pause, let the yeah. thought continue. Whereas it's different for you because you seem to be a, a renaissance man. There's a lot of stuff to do with your CV. What do you describe yourself as? I'm a journalist and a writer. And I'm encouraged... When you speak to novelists and writers, who that's what they do all the time, they say things like, don't be scared to call yourself a writer. I still refer to myself as a journalist and a writer. I haven't reversed it to writer and journalist. I was a broadcaster um, out of Central America, Mexico, Caribbean, and things like that. Um, Journalist and broadcaster felt more comfortable, just that little bit of, um, what is it, um, imposter syndrome mm. or unnecessary modesty. Um, calling yourself a writer feels a little bit pretentious, but I'd like to say that's where I was anyway. I'm just doing some writing this morning for the Financial Times on the subject of the Festival of Britain from 70 years ago. Oh, um, yes. You know, I, and, I, you know, I, I thank you. I, that's very kind of you to say Renaissance and all that. Um, I find it interesting crossing subjects. Sometimes I feel deeply... Envious of the likes of John Wilson, John, one of the most um, prolific and, um, how can we say, analytical uh, football writers. I, I'm right, John of uh, The Guardian. Is, no, no, am I getting mixed up with John Wilson of the BBC? Uh, um, no, uh, Jonathan Wilson used to be at the FT. He is now full-time at The Guardian. And over Christmas, I broadcasted the 12 Days of Wilson. Uh, I always love to say, I spoke to him, I said, how long have I got you for? He said, well, Bake Off's at eight. We got to eight and we still hadn't talked about his Hungary book, which is what I really needed to talk to him about. No, that's right. Now, Jonathan, sorry, I should I was getting mixed up with John Wilson, Bob Wilson's son. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. And Jonathan, I remember sitting with back in about 2003 at um, the Festival of Light when England were playing Turkey, needing to win to qualify the European Championships the following year. Jonathan is one of the most um, focused of journalists and, you know, writes wonderful books of Argentina 
the Hungarian teams of old and great players. I sometimes wish that um, I would focus much more, but I just find history in general very interesting, and I've had one or two opportunities to write about it, whether from goalkeepers to bankers uh, to bananas. And if you ask me what the connection is between the three, we were talking about this recently, what is the connection? Um, Well, what can I say? There's always a lot of banana skins in the goal mouth, and certainly the bankers of recent times were skidding around on a few and we're all paying the price now. Indeed. It is difficult to see a connection sometimes, but thank you for using the word Renaissance. Well, I learned that, was it Hamlet? Oh, I was studying, because I did English literature at um, A-level. I dropped it for degree level because I didn't want to read about books. I wanted to actually read books. Um, yeah. And some of the books I haven't read are yours. Uh, I will go to the website that you've written, just in, uh, just in case people want to look at peterchapmanbooks.com. Uh, we've got The Goalkeeper's History of Britain, published in 1999. Bananas, How the United Fruit Company Shaped the World. I'm not going to talk about Bendy Bananas. That was published as Jungle Capitalist in 2007. And what a great time to write a book about Lehman Brothers uh, in 2010, the last of the imperious rich. Uh, the book we're here to talk about Uh, is about 1966 and the end of old-fashioned Britain, which is quite a remarkable, sui generis book. But while we're on Lehman Brothers, after writing that book, did you expect things to return to, what was it, negative feedback, to some some kind of homeostasis in banking? Because everything seems to have recovered from the crash of 2008. Let me see. I think not enough was done. A colleague, a very esteemed colleague, at the Financial Times, Martin Wolf, brilliant, yeah, said um, at one of the Kenwood Festival sessions that annually the FT has. It didn't last year; it's hoping to this year. Martin made the comment, I think, two years ago. If the Americans had banged up a few more bankers, I think he knew he used the term the, the number ten or twelve. We might not have had Trump if people had seen the banking community being made to answer itself much more. We might not have got that reaction from the ground floor, as it were, that came, you know, that, that rallied behind Trump. Um, it was the people at the top, the elites getting away with things, such that people further down the pecking order turned to a character like Trump to come and save them. You could say to some extent as well, there's, there's a factor there in Brexit that a lot of people in this country feel disenchanted with the kind of industry over the last, what, 50 odd years and more, and the whole areas, you know, the northeast, Jonathan's area. Jonathan yep, Red Car, Sunderland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, um, an aunt of mine is from an old pit village just outside Sunderland called Silksworth. Mm-hmm. And I remember going there for her wedding back in 1957. And it was classic, you know, almost D.H. Lawrence territory in terms of you know, a mining community, slag heap over the bungalows where we were staying for what was a very nice wedding. And when I went to visit 30 years ago again, um, 1990, just before I went off to be involved in the Italian World Cup, I went to Silksworth and there was the, the former slag heap converted into a ski slope. Uh, a training slope for skiing. Not exactly what you would have thought the area needed. So when everything, well, everything failed to improve when we lost our industry, no wonder people turned to areas, start blaming somebody. I mean, it wasn't the Europeans' fault this had happened particularly. 
No, but they, they look for saviors. People say that say the right uh, say the right thing, and in America that happened with Trump. And as I say, Martin Martin Wolf at the FT said, if a few more have been penalised, hadn't been allowed to get away with it, then maybe there wouldn't have been the disenchantment uh, that led yeah. to Trump. Was I? Yeah, it, it is. Have things gone back to normal? I I think that we haven't recovered from it without all sorts of implications of the crash of two thousand and eight. And um, once again, Trump and Brexit have something you know creep in there somewhere. If I were to go into it any great length, I think you would you would find there's a connection there. I, I, um, I must read the Financial Times to to find out more about that. It is astonishing how the Quad, the four most important politicians in the Queen's government, journalist, journalist, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. Right. I I hadn't. That, that's what you mean, like Michael Gove. And uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, and the then Sage and Sunak. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Oh dear, who would have thought that journalism would align in such a way with with people rather than be there to um, to voice informed criticism? It's a shame. It has changed so much, and this book, which came out five years ago for the fiftieth anniversary, out of time, nineteen sixty six, and the end of old fashioned Britain, published on Wisdom. Wisdom Sports Writing. And this is yeah. a book that um, each paragraph is itself its own little essay. There's memoir, there's sociology, there's sport, uh, there's the Cray Twins. Uh, Hendrix pops up near the end, as if you can't get enough. In the epilogue, you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. Do you often think of your meeting with Jimi when you hear his music? Even without hearing his music, uh-huh. I don't hear so much of Jimi's music anymore. I think of Purple Haze. Wonderful. I'm not a guitar player, but you can't help but appreciate Hendrix. But that was a great day and I, I a great evening. And all I was doing was hanging around the marquee, um, not being able to afford the, the entry of seven and sixpence or whatever it was at the time. And so you'd hang around till half time and people would come out. In those days, of course, the last train back to Hornchurch or something usually left at about 10 o'clock. So people were handing their pass-outs that you know, somebody had stuffed in their hand as they left. And you could get in and see the second half. And that's when Hendrix came past me. We had a chat insofar as you could have a chat with Hendrix at the time for about five minutes. He was on various chemicals, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And it was a great moment. I... I at the time, you know, you'd bump into the likes of Eric Burden, or who was down, you know, meanwhile in the ship pub down in Wardour Street, the ship, and people would come past you and have a chat with them. But then I think later on talking to my daughter's generation, who revered, you know, so the later generations, of course, Hendrick's long since dead, when you mentioned, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I met him, I had a chat with him and all that kind of thing, you suddenly realised that this was, <laughs> this was something more than just as it was in 1966 or 67, mm-hmm. that you, you took it for granted, you bump into these people. Great moment. You were mentioning Jonathan's book about the Hungarians. I'm sorry, I'm slightly departing here from 1966. But in 1986, when based in Mexico City, during the World Cup, I went to work for ITV Sport. I was the BBC correspondent. But during the, um, the World Cup, they had loads of people come out from base I wasn't officially staff of the BBC. Loads of people come out from base, and the BBC said that they couldn't give me a great deal of work. All the bases were covered, so ITV Sport took me on. And um, one night, when Brazil thought they were going to win that competition, they organised the international media versus Brazil media. 
and um, in the dressing room, I was standing next to Martin Tyler, um, great commentator for Sky, but at that time as well with ITV Sport, and we suddenly realised we were standing next to Ferenc Pushka, who was changing his boots next to us. And of course, he was a man with a sizable stomach, but I, as I was changing, you know, lacing my boots, I looked up, I didn't know who this guy with the big stomach was, looked up and saw the central centre party. And I turned around to Martin and was well, sort of expletive, deleted, saying, it's Pushka. And Martin said something to the effect of, I know it is, keep cool, keep calm. <laughs> yeah, these things happen. I think it's one of the, I mean, I met Hendrix when I wasn't a journalist, but these things happen in, when you're a journalist, you meet these people. And then in the end, it turned out that I crossed over to play for Brazil with Rivellino in the team and Clodoaldo from the great team of um, uh, the great 1970 World Cup winners. What an amazing kickabout what that was before the game with um, Rivellino kicking into me and me pretending I knew what to do with his banana shots and everything. But suddenly found myself in the first 10 minutes with Pushkas on the ball, left foot on the ball, I just waiting for him to do a 1953 drag back and just dying for him to shoot the ball towards me in goal. As it was, I think he was just a bit beyond things, getting old then. But what moments you can get you know, as, a, as a journalist. Back to 66, that was, that was a great moment, meeting Hendrix. I don't always think you feel like that, you realise that at the time, so you have to sort of wallow a little bit in the, in, in the afterglow. Well, there's 55 years of afterglow, and uh, yes, you were a goalkeeper. You were quite a good goalkeeper, and uh, before we talk about the, uh, the finals, uh, you do put in all kinds of memoir, and I must mention, as someone who only has two uncles... Uh, because my mum has one brother and my dad has one brother. Your dad is one of ten. So um, your holidays were always sorted. You would go and see an aunt or an uncle or various bits of family. Uh, your dad was a royal signalman who worked, in, who worked, who was enlisted in World War Two in Italy and North Africa. But your grandpa was a newspaper man. He had ink for hands because he worked in the News of the World print room back when the News of the World was it. It was the paper. I love the stories in the book out of time where you say you just get papers dropped off. So you're that's constantly right. surrounded and by newsprint. That, that's right. And I had no concept of politics at the time, of course. But some, whatever my granddad, he worked two nights. Saturday was the big one, of course, where you almost doubled your money. My granddad was uh, very much a freelance throughout the Depression of the 1930s. He was one of the original Bill Stickers who did their best to avoid being prosecuted. He was also a carpenter. Um, a very good carpenter, although I think self-trained. And in the First World War, he worked, he, he was a mechanic and he was part of the team. Lieutenant Colonel, right, Lieutenant, was it Robinson, who shot down a Zeppelin in 2016, I think, over somewhere like Cuffley. And my granddad used to shape jewellery boxes and things out of old propellers. And these, you know, the propellers would be made of finest mahogany or things like that. Made money. A little bit. Didn't get killed at least. He only had one eye, so he fortunately wasn't sent to the trenches. But when he came out of the uh, First World War, he had £300 in his pocket, more or less. It took him a little while, but that allowed him to buy his first house in Islington. Later on, my mother now has 99 and reasonable health needs permanent care. That £300 investment with my granddad was still paying for her care, effectively. So I had sort of... Yeah, he was a newspaper man, and I remember going down Bouverie Street on a Saturday night to have open nights, and there'd be all the blokes, you know, the print unions downstairs, Nat Soper and all the rest of them, cheerfully 
welcoming you and everything, and there was a sense of the, you smelt the newsprint. And mm. I won't say I was destined as a result of that to go into Fleet Street, but, um, well, fortunately, with the education I had, I was able to go upstairs. Uh, I always had the ability, by the way, when you had went below stairs to speak to the guys on the machines, and you had know, lots of yellow lines around in those days. You couldn't cross them. If you dared walk up to a compositor and give your copy to him, that was somebody else's job. Yep. But I knew how to talk to them anyway as a result of that background. And I used to, instead of sounding like I'd gone to Sussex University and the LSE, I dropped my accent. A little bit false, but sometimes you have to do this. I dropped my accent to what it would be if I was standing at the clock end of Highbury. Yep. And that always got me through the print rooms without any great incident. A lot of guys, say at the FT, who came speaking with an Oxbridge accent, if they went downstairs in the print room, they'd be given a very hard time indeed. I was lucky to have that background. And on my dad's side, as you say, all those uncles and brothers, and that meant summers, for some part of the summer holiday, going off to exotic Bedfordshire. My dad, as a result of his experience in Italy and North Africa, Italy, he'd learned good Italian. He had a tuneful ear. No real education in, in, in languages or anything, but he learned good Italian. And my mum, my dad would have stayed at home at the end of the Second World War as a country boy, wasn't interested in going abroad, although he really, how do you say, involved himself in the culture. He's a very personable person. He loved the food. He loved talking to people, but he'd have stayed at home. It was my mother of Italian background from Clark and Well, a long way back, such that she doesn't speak a word of Italian. She had the curiosity to go back to Italy made him go back, and, and I remember him in the 60s talking good, um, good Italian. And not many people in Islington were getting a chance. That, the Islington of those days, you know, late 50s, early 60s, had the chance to go, oh, well, school, you know, the school I went to in Islington, now the posh street of Knoll Road, kids there, you know, going abroad, you know, it was like the Isle of Wight or the Isle of Sheppey or somewhere like that, and I'm not being patronising. Uh, and the girl I sat next to at school uh, told me for her summer holiday she'd been, what is it, hot picking in Kent. Sounded very exotic to me. And to tell people when you'd, you'd been to Siena and you'd seen the Palio in Siena, this was absolutely amazing. And it's a fortunately diverse background, a bit rural, a bit very much urban jungle, old style Islington. And, you know, my mum and dad were brought together by Hitler, effectively. Indeed. I and, uh, found myself, the other day, I was on Ball Pond Road. I was actually walking the, in the footsteps of you and friends in Dalston. Yeah. And I walked all the, I needed a walk. So I went all the way down from Dalston, Kingsland, all the way to Highbury and Islington, down that long yeah. straight road where I'd never been before. And yeah. so as I was reading the opening uh, 150 pages of Out of Time, I knew those footsteps. I've spent a, lo a long time in Islington and... They've redone that roundabout by the station. I watched the Champions League final between Liverpool and Spurs in one of those big pubs in Islington. I've been to the screen on the green. I think my dad had a share in it because it was an everyman. Um, dad oh. was involved at the everyman. Uh, but that was the Rex. I know exactly what you were going to say when you were talking about Collins Music Hall because I've bought books from that Waterstones. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And it's a world of North London urban north london and you you reference king's cross which is very insalubrious or salubrious insalubrious uh, at the time meanwhile you were born in 1948 a belated happy birthday we're talking in the month of your cough cough birthday 
but you are five <laughs> days younger than the National Health Service. And you were born in, of all places, Brockett Hall, where Dad has played golf. Yeah. And that's amazing, because I was up there last summer, my partner, we had you know, one of those days when we, we couldn't go abroad, so I said, well, let's just drive around. We decided to go to some stately homes. I think we went to Hatfield House mm-hmm. and uh, the one in Buckinghamshire or Berkshire, which Ronnie Wood has some great interest in. He had an exhibition on. And then we drove to Brockett Hall. And as a Brockett baby, in the old days of Lord Brockett, and the Brockets, of course, got on the wrong side of the government in the Second World War, so because so many, like many upper-class people, they couldn't understand why Mr. Churchill or people like him were supporting the side which had the Russians on and why weren't they in with that nice Mr. Hitler? So uh, Lord Brockett of the day, I think, was made to pay penance afterwards by giving up his home to the mothers of London, uh, is, London mothers, mainly from Islington and Hackney, who didn't have many hospitals around, even in you know, 1948, 1950. Of course, yes. So, that, so I was born in a stately home, and I drove, drove up there last July, and I said, well, we won't be able to get in. Oh, uh, every so often, the former Lord, oh, the old Lord Brockett used to hold days when you could have dinner there, or you could always call up, and as a Brockett baby, you could, um, you could visit. But anyway, now, with the golf club that you mentioned, and they'd had... It fallen on hard times. His events business had gone bust, I think, and he'd gone to jail at one stage. And I, we drove past, and I said to uh, Tessa, my partner, I said that um, oh, we won't be able to get in. At that moment, the golfer was coming out of this gate. It swung open, and we swung in and drove <laughs> around. You got the pass out. Around. You were able to and get I, in. <laughs> yeah, I, I blagged the pass out. Amazing. And you, as you approach the front of. Well, you, the, the birthing room was the room over the entrance. And Jim Crace, a great novelist, uh, was also born there. I think John Crace is John Crace of the Guardian cousin. Huh. Jim, Jim was also born there. I haven't seen him for years. I talk as if I meet him every day. I don't. Lovely guy. And he said that room was actually called von Ribbentrop's room, the old foreign, or was it the ambassador to yeah. Britain for the Nazis? And, you know, the Brockets used to entertain um, people of on the right side of the right hand side of politics, not the right side of politics. Mm. But Brockett Hall has that history, and lo and behold, I'm I'm a, an original Islingtonian, actually born in a stately home. My mother remembers it as being a bit grim, you know. Uh, um, she had to stay for babies in those days, ten, twelve days, and it was very basic national health. But you know, I think the thing that in my life that I've been blessed with even before education, is a degree of health um, which comes out of the national health system. Being born on that fifth day afterwards, you had um, all sorts of orange juice and powdered milk and cod liver oil given you free from there onwards. And I think we were three inches, several inches taller than the previous generation. And um, I'm fortunately able now at the age of 73 to still enjoy good health and much of it has to do with that. After that, of course, we had the other benefits like free education, uh, which can, you can only build on. You, know, you can only, you know, what comes first is your health. So thank God for the NHS. I know all sorts of people on you know, the conservative side of politics say that as well now, not least Boris Johnson, having been probably saved by mm-hmm. the NHS. Yes. Um, I'm not so sure many people at the time on the conservative side of politics were supporting Aniron Bevan when he brought that in. But I am one of the lucky ones that um, came out of that period, uh, have come out of that period. 
And thank goodness. So spin forward. Here's the the million dollar question. What was more important to you? National service ending or the legislation and the legalization of the bookmaker, both in 1960? National service, the abolition thereof, Mm -hmm. was the most important thing to me. I remember the relief. My, I have an uncle on my mum's side who's only nine years older than me, so he's almost like a big brother. He was caught by it and did nothing. Of course, at times of full employment then in the 1950s, in his case, kids didn't want to do that kind of thing. And the army got fed up with it as well. It was you know, people saying, to, oh, you've got to go and discipline these people. They said, we're not a social service. We don't want this bunch of yachts turning up. People were teddy boys and all the rest of it, fancied themselves as fighting out the dance, outside the dance halls of Finsbury Park. We don't want them turning up. So they got rid of it. And I, that was a great relief because people in national service not, weren't just being sent to paint fences in barracks in Worcestershire. They were being sent to Malaya, Malaya or the Malayan emergency, or they might be sent to Cyprus, you know, where Don McCullin, another Islington boy, uh, made his uh, reputation. They might be sent to Kenya or Kenya, as it used to yes, be called. Kenya. To be fighting <laughs> Kenya to be fighting people they didn't want to fight, but were told were somehow lesser than us. So I think uh, the abolition of national service, um, I remember being a relief. Thank God. In fact, first thing I thought was, thank God I don't have to have the injections. You know, sort of we were brought mm-hmm. up with loads of injections, which we're only thankful for now. Polio, tuberculosis, smallpox. You list them, we were queuing up for them. And I, we were only talking about this the other day with, uh, you to, you know, with vaccinations on mind and people being anti-vaxxers. At the time of the polio jab, I remember that down in the Essex Road, you would have walked along it, or that trip that I took from Kingston Road, Borspon Road, coming back to the Angel. Along Essex Road was the clinic where we all went, and the line of people waiting at about 1958, whenever it was, 57, for their polio jab was enormous. And that was much because the well, part of the panic was because well, what had really sparked it, Jeff Hall. Uh, the Birmingham City and England International had died around that time. And when you've got a famous or healthy young sportsman dying, that really set off the panic. When he came to national service, my dad had only ever told me that you had loads of injections in the army with old rusty needles and all this, and a matron who wasn't the least, well, Sergeant Major, perhaps who wasn't much caring about the way, how hard he hit you. And I'm thinking, thank God I don't have to have the injections, but thank God I didn't have to spend those two years not doing, you know, doing something which might have involved fighting, fighting people. The bookmakers thing that you mentioned was important insofar as it was part of my education. The fascinating thing, of course, was it the only un- the unprecedented time when if you had previous convictions for something, you could appear in court and get a license. You know, the, when they legalized bookmaking, a lot of people who went to get licenses have been done for... Of course, yes. The, the book is runners and all this. And if you could show a number of previous convictions, that qualified you to be an upstanding member of the bookmaking uh, profession. Um, it was interesting to me, not... I think I had great ambitions when I when I failed to make it as a footballer. I wondered if I could be a professional gambler, you know, out of the in the fog and mists of Newmarket at five in the morning, watching the next best winner of the Oaks or something like that. It, it wasn't to be, um, but it was a great education um, actually around the betting shops. My first job for the Tote Tote Investors, watching all the money. If I gambled money away when I should have been doing my studies in sixth form, when you saw the money being wasted by people 
um, and that was only working for the tote rather than on a course, a race course. Um, it made me realise how futile my half a ground each way was. A great education, you meet a lot of people, and some of the nicest people, well, I think the, I mentioned him in, in the book, a fellow called Peter Dick, who was the school captain and captain of the football team at Highbury, um, was the son of a, an Oxton bookmaker. I say Oxton advisedly because I don't know all the posh people who live in Oxton these days. Now, say the H, Peter was a, the son of an Oxton bookmaker and there were others at my school my grammar school dealing or working with people in around the horse racing trade and i learned a lot i I learned a lot i learned mainly a lot about what not to do Mm -hmm. actually yeah and so that i I, i'd say yes now end of national service great didn't have to go and fight anybody and or waste my time in you know some barracks somewhere in shrewsbury or whatever mum's partner came out of ucl with a history degree in the early 80s in london and he got a job at a bookmaker's, so he was doing odds for three years, and now he, he watches the horses and he gambles, and every year he says, I'll put on a free bet for you for the National. Uh, and this year my partner won about 80 quid, which was very useful. Uh, the only thing with gambling, when the fun stops, do stop, uh, and that seems to be what you did. 